0: As a teenager, I was in several big stage productions. And uh, if you've never been a part of a big stage production, one interesting aspect uh, of big plays like that is no matter how dark or calm things appear on the stage, there's always total chaos and commotion backstage. You guys are nodding your heads. You've probably seen that. Okay, if you've been in a stage production, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, and, you know, the audience might just be watching a single person on the stage and maybe just one tiny little spotlight on a soloist or something. Right. So there's not much going on. Dark stage, one person, just just one little thing going on on stage. But backstage, it's like a beehive back there, isn't it? It's a beehive. I mean, there's all kind of craziness going on. People are moving about frantically back there. They're running in and out of closets. They're like throwing clothes everywhere. There's clothes on the floor. They're trying to get ready for the next scene, you know. So they're changing their clothes for that. They're trying. They're getting their outfits on, you know. Uh, other people are. Uh, there's like the prop folks. They're they're wheeling these big carts with these big huge props on them everywhere. So you're running back there trying to avoid all these huge props that are being rolled around. Other people didn't study their lines very well that week, so they're back there like. Going over like hardcore, they're each line, they're like trying to memorize it right before they go on the stage. Other people are like clearing their throat because they're about to sing a solo or something. It's like me, 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 you know, you know about that, right? So, I mean, there's, there's just all kind of craziness and activity going on behind the scenes that the audience cannot see. Audience doesn't see any of that. Okay. Now, the book of Exodus is an amazing story of divine deliverance but it often does not appear that way. It does not appear that way. For centuries, the stage for Israel seemed dark and empty with nothing going on. God doing nothing. That's what it seemed like. For 430 years, the Israelites suffered as slaves. It seemed for all the world that if there even was a God, He was a billion miles away from Israel. The scene in front of them was dark and empty. But what they didn't realize, and what you and I very often don't realize, is that behind the scenes, God is hard at work. There's actually a lot going on back there that we don't see. So let's check it out together, shall we? Let's check out God backstage. Today we come to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 25. 11 through 25. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's okay. The verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God saw The people of Israel. And God knew. This is God's word. So in this passage, we see three pictures. You can think of them as three scenes behind the scenes. So, when the stage is dark, quiet, and bare, what's God doing backstage? The first thing he's doing, number one in your outline God is growing our faith. God is growing our faith. In verse 11, we see where things go terribly wrong for Moses. So he went out to his people. He's trying to identify with them because he is a Hebrew. So he's going out to the Hebrews and he saw their tremendous burdens. And in particular, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And so Moses went out and killed this man. And the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. And so he tried to break them up, but they didn't want to hear anything from Moses at all. Now, if you could translate the Hebrew into the language of my seven year old son, the man said to Moses, Who made you the boss of me? Who made you the boss? Why do you get to tell us what to do? You're not the boss, right? Are you going to kill me like you killed that fella yesterday? Somehow, the word about the murder has spread. How did it spread? We don't know. Here's what we do know. The only person who knew what Moses had done was the man he had saved. It's the only person who knew. Now, rather than going back home and thinking, whew, close one, Lord, thank you that this man saved my life. I don't want to get him in any more trouble. I better keep my mouth shut. That's not what happened. Instead, he goes home and spreads the word about what Moses did. Now, why did he do that? Well, we don't really know. I mean, maybe he was excited. Maybe he's just so happy to not be dead, Right? He's just like, oh man, you guys will never believe what happened to me today. I was getting beaten by this Egyptian and then this other Egyptian ran in and he kicked his butt, man, and then he killed him and then he threw him in the sand. It was awesome. Maybe that's what happened. I don't think that's what happened, though. More likely, he himself was afraid. He was afraid. Why? Well, because he was with an Egyptian official who is now missing. He was last seen with an official who nobody can find. And so folks knew that this official was mad at the Hebrew, and now the official is gone. And guess who they're going to blame? So I think it's more likely that he began spreading the word about Moses. He might have even let the Egyptians know. He might have said, hey, guys, uh, I want you all to know that I didn't do anything. I was just taking my beating like a good little Hebrew, okay? I wasn't going to do nothing. I was just taking my beating, but then one of your guys came up, and then he killed the Egyptian. I don't know why he did it. I didn't do anything. I didn't call out for help or nothing. I was just taking my beating. But one of your people came up and killed him. I think that's likely what happened. But however it happened... We don't really know, but what we do know is word spread very quickly, very quickly, and the Israelites were not happy with Moses. That's what we know. They were not happy with him. They outright rejected Moses. He thought he was being some kind of hero, right, for saving the Hebrew, but that ain't how the Hebrews took it. They outright rejected what Moses had done. And so Moses knew because they had rejected him, he had to get out of there. He had to get out of there. And so he ran away to Midian. Where is Midian? Midian is in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) I mean the middle of nowhere. It's several days journey southeast of Egypt. Interestingly, the Midianites were actually distant relatives of the Hebrews, of the Israelites. They came through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. And so sometimes the Midianites were cool with the Israelites. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were actually arch enemies of one another. And so anyway, he met, Moses met a man there, a priest named Ruel. And you may be more familiar with Ruel's other name, uh, which shows up in our next chapter. It's Jethro. Jethro is his other name. So Moses found Jethro, and he found himself a wife, Zippurah. And so Moses stayed there. And had a son. And when we come to the end of the chapter, we get a glimmer of hope. So things are going okay for Moses. You know, he doesn't have a people anymore. But, you know, these foreigners have kind of accepted him. He did a kind thing for these daughters. They've kind of brought him in as one of their own. Okay, things are going okay. He's got a wife. He's got a family. got a son and all that. And then there's another glimmer of hope. Right here at the end of the chapter. Did you catch it? The Pharaoh has died. The Pharaoh has died. So that's a glimmer of hope, right? It invites the possibility that maybe Moses can go back. Maybe he can return to Egypt. But unfortunately, as we'll see very soon in the next chapter, the new Pharaoh is just as wicked and hateful as the last one. So that's a bummer. So our glimmer of hope dies pretty quickly. So Moses stuck out in the desert for 40 years. Now, at this point in time, let's all all just together right now, let's think of all that Moses has lost. And it's a lot. So he went from living in a royal household in urban Egypt to living as a foreigner in a rural Midianite tent. He went from the privilege of a prince, son of the king, and the greatest nation on the earth, to total obscurity, as a fugitive criminal out in the Sinai wilderness. If you were writing Moses' biography at this point, uh, you would say that he had made some poor life decisions. You made some poor life decisions. You know, I've been in counseling, you know, I've counseled others and I've been in counseling myself many times and I've heard that phrase a bunch. (laughs) Dustin, you've made some poor life decisions, (laughs) right? And so uh, that's where Moses is. That's what we would say. He's made some really poor life decisions. (laughs) He gave up the powerful and wealthy Egyptian culture to be identified with poor slaves, And even they rejected him. (laughs) They rejected him. So he had to go live in exile with foreigners. And at first glance, it's just hard to see what Moses was thinking. Dude, what are you thinking here, man? You had it made. You had it made in Pharaoh's palace. You were son of the king. Why did you leave? I got to be honest, I don't know that I would have left, I don't know that I would have left the palace. So why did Moses leave? Why did he choose Israel and exile over Egypt? Well, interestingly, the New Testament gives us the answer. It comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. And the author writes this. The author says, By faith, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt. Not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover. And sprinkled the blood. So that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So. We don't know how exactly. We don't know when exactly, but in some very real way, Moses heard the gospel. He heard the gospel and he believed it. He believed it. Now you and I get a much clearer version of the gospel than what Moses got, certainly as we are on this side of the cross. But Moses got it somehow. And he understood, he understood right away that the treasures found in the gospel are far greater than his inheritance in Egypt. Far greater. And he understood that it was better to be exiled in Midian and mistreated with his people than to miss out on this treasure. And so, it was by faith that he traded the palace for the desert by faith. And it was out in that desert that his faith would grow and grow and grow. It was out there in the desert that he would learn to trust himself less and less and learn to trust God more and more. So what does that mean for you? Here's what it means. Never think that God is wasting your time. Never think that, because he's not. Even when you think your life is in the desert, you think you're in a place you shouldn't be. You might be sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I never thought I'd still be in Alabama. Dadgum Huntsville, Alabama. Are you kidding me? Maybe you're thinking that today. Or maybe you're thinking, gosh, I never thought I'd still have this job. I never thought I'd still be single. Maybe you're a teenager and you think, I never thought I would still be unpopular. I thought by now I'd have more friends and more acceptance. Or maybe you're thinking, gosh, I never thought I'd still have this house. I never thought I'd still have this... X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. Maybe that's you today. You think you're in the desert. I have two things to tell you on this point. First, God doesn't owe you anything. So that's really important. (laughs) Let's just get that out of the way right off the bat here. He actually doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you a happy life. He doesn't owe you a bigger house. He doesn't owe you a better job. He doesn't owe you any of that. In fact, he doesn't even owe you your next breath. Every inhale and exhale is a gift. It's a total gift. He doesn't owe you anything else. Uh, That's first of all. Second of all, though, God doesn't work on your timetable. He never has, and he never will. (laughs) But here is the promise, the wonderful promise. That if you belong to Him, then you can be certain that He is always working backstage for you. When you're in the desert, when your stage is empty and dark and bare, you can be certain that God is backstage. And He's busy as a bee back there. And what is He busy as a bee doing? What he's busy doing back there is he's working to get you to stop trusting yourself. That's what he's busy doing backstage. He's trying to get you to stop trusting your dreams, your vision for your life, your efforts, your talents, your intelligence. He's trying to get you to stop it. (laughs) In great love and wisdom, he's trying to get you to stop it to stop trusting yourself and to start trusting in Him alone. He's growing your faith out there in the desert. He's growing mine too. That's point number one. Point number two. So God's growing our faith backstage. What else is He doing? What else is happening backstage? Point number two. God hears, remembers, sees, and knows. God hears, remembers, sees, and knows. What do I mean? Well, while all of this is happening, while Moses has got this huge dilemma of which people group to choose from, you know, Egypt or Israel, while he's gone out and chosen Israel, and he thinks everything's going to be great because of that, chose the people of God, he goes and kills a man, and then that doesn't go well. His own people reject him, and then he He runs to Midian, and then he is super nice to these gals, and he meets a wife, and he has a son, and he spends 40 years out there in the desert. And while all of that is happening, God is well aware of Moses and what's going on with him. And not only is God well aware of what's going on with Moses, he's well aware of what's going on with the nation of Israel. Not just for those 40 years, but for over 400 years, God was well aware. Look at verses 24 through 25. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now in those two verses are four of the most stunning beautiful remarkable verbs you'll ever find in fact if you have a paper bible i guess you can do that in your bible app too highlight these verbs these are awesome verbs here folks what are they god heard remembered saw and knew god heard remembered saw and knew now, this is the very first occurrence in the Bible of the word remember. It's the first one. And it's a very important word in the Bible. God is often said to remember the recipient of his covenant or he remembers a promise that he made to someone or some people group. And so this language occurs more than a dozen times in the Old Testament. But I know what you're thinking. How could God remember something right well what we need to, we need to see is that the word remember when it refers to god remembering it's not used literally as if god zones out and forgets where he puts his car keys that's not what happens with god he's omniscient okay he doesn't forget anything all right he, he's not like you and i he doesn't zone out at any time. So what does it refer to? Well, God's remembering involves moving toward the object of his memory. That's what it means for God to remember. For God to remember is to act. He moves toward the object of his memory. But another interesting word is found a lot in the Old Testament too, and it's that God forgets. God forgets. And you said, now wait a minute, preacher, you just said God doesn't forget his car keys. Right. That word's not used literally either. (laughs) Okay? That's not literal either. So what does it mean for God to forget? Well, it means his refusal to act. His refusal to act. So his remembering means God chooses to act. His forgetting means God chooses not to act. Okay? That's what that means. For God to remember and for God to forget. Now, Hear me. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to know what God remembers and what God forgets. That's going to be really important for you in your Christian life. You need to know what God remembers and what God forgets. So let's make it super duper clear. All right? What does he remember and what does he forget? Well, God remembers his promises. Who remembers his promises always. And what does he forget? God forgets your sins. Always. Always and forever. Now, most of the time, we get that completely backwards. We get it backwards. We believe that God forgets his promises. Oh, but he remembers our sins. We think God is some kind of cosmic cop who's always busy like a bee writing sin tickets. And he never forgets what you owe. What you owe the big bad judge. That's what we think. Hey, I'm guilty too. I'll raise my hand. I raise my hand. of thinking that too often. But look at what God says. Look at what he says himself in Jeremiah 31, 34. This is Jeremiah 31, 34. Is God a cosmic cop? Well, here's what he says about himself. He says, quote, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. lest you think that was just a one off check out what god says in isaiah 43:25 isaiah 43:25 this is god speaking he says i i am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and i will not remember your sins so Are you here today and are you confused about what God remembers and what he forgets? Do you have it backwards? I get it backwards all the time in my mind. I get it backwards. Some of you are here this morning and you conceive of a God who always remembers your sins. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice but folks if our god is no better than santa we are of all people most to be pitied because guess which list we make it on (laughs) it ain't the nice list i promise you all of us are on the naughty list And hey, no wonder so many skeptics think God is a miserable tyrant. No wonder they think that. It's because they've been told, or they themselves have gotten this backwards. They believe God always forgets His promises. Oh, but He always remembers your sins. And He can't wait to bring them back up and remind you of them. No wonder they think He's a miserable tyrant. But thankfully, that's not the God of the Bible. That's a God on some Instagram meme. But it's not the actual God of the Bible. For the actual God of the Bible remembers his promises and takes your sins and he drowns them in the wonderful, merciful ocean of divine forgetfulness. Your sins are dead. He's drowned them. They're dead. That's the God of the Bible. I don't care what sin it is, it's dead. God has chosen to drown it. That's our God. And then we come to the last verse of Exodus 2, which is, I'm not going to say it's my favorite verse in the Bible, but it's up there. It's way up there <laughs> okay this verse is i'm gonna go top five this verse right here is top five for me i love this verse Ooh. let's look at it together exodus 2 verse 25 says and god saw the people of israel and god knew God knew. I love that verse. And I think the NIV translated this verse poorly. I like the NIV a lot. Okay? So don't hear me wrong here. I like the NIV for the most part. I think they do a poor job of this particular verse. uh, Because uh, they translate it. It says that God was concerned about Israel. Now, that's true. Okay? God was concerned about Israel. That's true, so the NIV's not wrong. But I just love what the, just the original Hebrew says, and it's actually very simple. The original Hebrew just says, God saw and God knew. God saw and God knew. I love that. Here's why I love that. At one of the lowest points in my life where I had blown it spectacularly, Another one of my poor life decisions, okay? I had blown it, baby. And I was really torn up about it. And I remember going home back to Tennessee, and I talked with my dad about it. My dad was a really big guy, like 6'4", 300 pounds, just a big old dude. I was always, like, really intimidated by him, you know. And he's kind of a hard man, you know. He wasn't touchy-feely. We weren't, like, very intimate. He's not a hugger, nothing like that, you know. We Actually, you know, we didn't have just the best relationship. Uh, very often, I felt like he was distant from me. But, you know, I went home, and I kind of spilled my guts to him about how I had just radically blown it. And I honestly don't remember anything that he said to me. I don't remember if he even said anything. I, I don't know that he did. And like I said, my dad's not touchy-feely. He's not a hugger. But in that moment, he just hugged me. That's all he did. He just put his big arms around me. I remember just crying into his shoulder. And in that moment, at that time, though I thought my dad was distant, though I thought there was kind of this awkwardness between us, in that moment I knew that my dad saw, he saw me and he knew, he knew, he saw me and he knew me. And today, I don't know what you're suffering. I don't know what you're going through or how long it will last. I don't know all that God is doing or why he hasn't given you the relief that you've prayed for. I don't know. But this I can say with confidence. On the authority of God's word, I can say that God sees you. He sees you. And God knows. God knows. He knows you. He knows your pain. He knows your tears. He knows. And that brings us to point number three. What else is God doing back there? Our last point. God is preparing a deliverer. God is preparing a deliverer. Now, the first two chapters of Exodus clearly reveal that behind the scenes of this story, where absolutely no one had a clue that this was going on, God was preparing a deliverer. Even the deliverer himself had no idea, (laughs) had no idea that this was happening. Israel didn't know. Egypt didn't know. Even the deliverer didn't know that this was happening behind the scenes. But is this the only place in the Bible where this happens? Because let's think about the bigger context. It's important that we always read Scripture in context. And so let's read the book of Exodus in context. Let's think about Exodus in regards to the entire Old Testament. Let's just think together. The whole Old Testament is filled with darkness, suffering, sin, and rebellion. The whole thing. Okay? And then it ends with God going completely silent for 400 years. Sound familiar? Is God asleep? Backstage in the Old Testament? Does he have his cot laid out? he's just snoozing back there no he's not God is very very busy very busy he is very busy preparing for another deliverer to come a deliverer far greater than Moses you see he is the one whom moses foreshadows one who will just like moses be rejected by his own people a deliverer who will also leave his privileged position as son of the king he will leave behind all his power authority and riches and he will come be identified with poor mistreated people. Just like Moses, God will prepare him out in the wilderness. And just like Moses, he will come to set his people free. But when he does, the people will prefer bondage over freedom, telling him, you're not the boss of me. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And so, in order to save them, in order to save us, our great deliverer will take onto his own shoulders all our tears, all our weaknesses, all our suffering, all our pain and all our sin. And He will be crushed by them in our place. In our place, He will be crushed. My friends, God knows your pain because He has suffered it Himself. And he knows your sin because he became your sin. And folks, that is the best thing that you can know in this life. It's the best thing you can know. That is the one thing that God wants you and everyone else To know the most. I mean. What do you think. Has been going on backstage. Behind all of history. What do you think has been going on back there. God has been preparing. To bring his son. To center stage. That is what's been happening. God intends for his son. To get every ounce of the glory that he deserves. And so God the Father has been busy like a bee using every event of world history to get us to the foot of the cross. He's been using everything. If you don't believe me, read Revelation chapters 4 and 5. That's your homework. Revelation 4 And five, if you don't believe me. Now you've probably heard it said, we've probably sung it here I'm sure, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's a verse we love. That's a verse we say amen to. That's a verse we raise our hands to and we love to sing. You might know that verse. And you might know that truth. But do you know where that will happen? Do you know where? Where will we bow the knee? Folks, we will bow the knee at the cross. That's where we will bow. So I have good news for you this morning. You no longer have to wonder where God is leading you in this life. Your wondering is over. <laughs> You're welcome. You see, in his great wisdom and love, he is using everything in your life to get you to the cross. He's using your joys, your sorrows, your wins, and your failures, everything. He's using everything to get your knee to hit the ground at the foot of his son's cross. That's where he's leading you. And you say, but I don't want to go there. (laughs) I don't want to go. Well, too bad. God intends for his son to get every ounce of the glory that he deserves for who he is and what he has done. And so he is leading all of us Every single last one of us to the cross. So here is the good news. The really good news. That when you cry out to God day after day, year after year, for a lifetime, and you wonder where He is and what He is doing, He hasn't forgotten you. You're out in the desert, you're sitting on a well, and you're bummed. Because it looks like God has forgotten you. It looks like God doesn't know what He's doing. It looks like God has just left you completely. But what does this text show show us? It shows us that God has not missed your prayers. He hasn't closed His eyes or stopped up His ears. God knows he knows your pain he knows your suffering he knows your sin and he is working everything in your life and everything in everyone's life so that at the end of history there will only be one thing left on the world stage one thing left and when that day comes God will quietly walk to the back. (laughs) And He'll flip on the spotlight on a suffering Savior on an old rugged cross. That will be the only thing left on the world's stage. And when our eyes behold Him, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And you and I, we will throw our hands in the air and we will join billions and billions of saints and angels crying out in a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain? What's the point of your life? What's the point of history? Jesus. Jesus is the point.